Hello, welcome to another episode of Django Chat. I'm Will Vincent, joined as ever by Carlton Gibson. Hi, Carlton. Hello, Will. And this episode, we're very pleased to have Karen Tracy from Cactus Group join us. Hello, Karen. Hello. Hello, Karen. Thank you for coming on. Yes, thank you. You've been you. one of the original people. I wanted to have come on the show because you've been involved with Django for a long time. Um, and we've emailed about various things. So I'm very excited to have you on the show to share all your knowledge and wisdom um, with us. <laughs> You're scaring me. Well, I mean, specifically, I'm thinking about the fact that you were on the DSF board back in the day and helped with some uh, matters. And um, yeah, Django's not that old, but it's been around for a while. And there's been sort of these generational things of knowledge and changes around the framework. So anyways, we'd love to talk about how you got into Django, obviously what you're doing today. Um, but maybe we could start with you know, your background. I know you have a formal background in how you got how you slid down the slope of computer science into Jenga. <laughs> yeah. Um, I started, I mean, I chose computing as a, as a focus in college. So I'm more of a traditional came into programming and computing via school. Um, that was a long time ago now. Um, I think I was fortunate in the timing that uh, I was getting into choosing a career back when personal computers were just coming out. The internet wasn't a thing yet. Uh, and there wasn't a lot of, it was at a time when it seemed like women were getting into all sorts of new things. You know, women could be doctors and lawyers and all this other thing. And I didn't have any back pressure of, well, this is something women don't get involved in. I think nowadays it's much more seen as a guy's thing. I think I was fortunate in the timing that I didn't uh, didn't run into that. And I also came from a family that worked for IBM, both my mother before she started having kids and my dad worked for IBM. So it was sort of like, uh, this is something my family does. Right. So I think I was very fortunate there in how I got into it. And um, I went into, I went to Notre Dame and that was where my dad had gone. And I went into the college of engineering. They didn't have computer engineering, but they had electrical engineering with a focus in computers. And um, yeah, that's, how I got into computing. Can I come to the question, the, the thought, you know, but you said, cause I read an article a little while ago that said something like, you know, in the early days of um, computer en computer science, computer engineering, there was, um, women were very much involved in that. And then there was, a, there came a sort of time where it, it, it switched. I was wondering if you've, if you've got a take on that, uh, you know, because it, it seems, you know, now with Django Girls and the, these initiatives, we're trying to bring it back, but it's still very male dominated. And I kind of wonder why. If you look at the history of it early on, you know, before he older than me, there were women involved in, you know, um, rewiring, you know, back when in the days when you had to unplug and plug wires into computers, women were involved. I think, yeah, I don't know. I, I wasn't, I don't, I'm not a historian. I don't know the, the how it all happened. But if you look at my mother's experience, you know, she stopped working when she started having kids. So it was more a societal thing of women didn't continue working. Yeah, okay. So there was that aspect to it. And then when personal computers came out, I've read various articles that talk about how the games and the, the marketing was all targeted at boys. Right. And it, it became much more of a, this is a, a boy thing. And that women didn't, girls didn't, didn't get attracted to it, didn't get into it. But I do think there's no reason, I don't think there's any reason that the programming aspects, I think women are an asset. Well, I, I thought it was, yeah, I, I've seen that chart where I think it was something in the 70s, it was majority female, and then it just sort of drops off a cliff. But I know that, I mean, there's like that book and movie Hidden Figures. I mean, there's female mathematicians. I mean, they called them computers, like, because they were the computing before yeah. they had so there's a long obviously history of that um, i always thought maybe it was like once computers started paying well <laughs> all the men were just like well we'll take those jobs whereas before it was seen yeah. as a little more menial which i think is inaccurate but it was very you know more detail focused um mm -hmm. who's i guess who's to say but it's a sh it's a shame uh, it doesn't make any sense to me from an objective point of view why that would be the case 
No, me neither. <laughs> Anyways, but so you had the background. You went into um, computing. So what was I don't what, what were the languages that you were studying in school, and you know how did you find your way to the web since you predated the web a little bit? Oh, well, back in school. Let's see. The first thing we learned was Fortran. Then we did Pascal. Then we did C. C is probably the language that I feel most like. That's my core language still, even though I haven't used it in decades. Because <laughs> I, uh, I got involved in a research lab at Notre Dame, and that's what led me to to stay there and get a master's and a PhD. And we were doing. Um, research into how mainframes and com personal computers were going to talk and interact with each other. And we ended up, uh, that research lab focused on building an operating system. You know, a, it was microkernel-like, you know, a base set of services onto which you could build an operating system. And all that was written in assembly in C. So I had uh, four good years of, that was all I did was C pretty much. So... Um, so kids these days, right? They just don't know what they're they're missing. <laughs> <laughs> but I, so over time, like when I would go back to, I'm going to jump around here. I guess I in the early 2000s, I wasn't working, and I was thinking about, uh, I should probably go back to getting a real job and having a decent income, uh, and I should try and see you know, interview, for interviews, make sure you could, you know, solve problems or whatever. So there's various sites you can go and see, you know, solve this problem, do that, whatever. And I had programmed in Java and Python by that point. But when I went to do these little problem solving problems that like my natural language, my the language I gravitated to do things in, even though I hadn't used it in decades, was C, okay. which I found interesting. Um, was that, I did use... I was going to say, was, was that like, you know, so you have all this experience in a PhD, but can you reverse a linked list on a whiteboard? Did you have to do <laughs> all that? I did not. Well, I did interview a couple of times with Google, and those were days of, right. yeah, pretty much whiteboard coding. Um and I'm very grateful now that I did not get a job with Google because I don't think I would have enjoyed it particularly. Cactus didn't have that kind of interview. So is Cactus <laughs> what you ended up, you went directly to, to Cactus after? Um... Yes. Okay. Um, so that was right when it started, I, right? Because we, 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 we've had them on. and When I joined, they were four or five guys in a co-working space in one little office that's probably as big as this room and I didn't fit. So I was in the co-working space. Um, that was, I joined in 2010. I think they were a couple of years old at that point. Yeah. Okay. So go on. And that, but that would be about the time when you wrote your book. So, and the reason I jumped to your book is because it's massively influential when I, for me, when I was picking up Django because I needed to, I had the sort of introductory material and then I had you know your testing and debugging book which was like my book yeah 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 no I mean it was as influential to you yeah you know really like I've <laughs> me, still got me it. too like, I read all, it I have it all the other all the other books have gone you know I don't need that anymore I don't know I've still got your book and it's like you know it, wow. it, it's you know um, the unit testing framework doc tests um the debugger you know you know, print logging, log, logging, you know, it's such a hard thing to pick up and such a hard thing to get right in Python. And then your book was just like, you know, walked through in such a good way. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm Thank super you. excited to have you on because it's like, wow, Karen, she, does, she wrote that book. Honestly, I hate Python logging. <laughs> yeah, no, it's... it's so hard to configure properly. Yeah. Uh, so that was, I, it was after I had finished the book that I started working for Cactus. Um, so I got out of school. I went to work for IBM for about a decade and I took some time off and then I got involved in crosswords and I wrote my own set of utilities for building crossword puzzles. And uh, what got me to Django was I wanted a, a, I wanted to be able to see my database of published puzzles from various um, outlets, New York Times, Los Angeles Times. I forget what all I had. And I wanted web pages where I could see the puzzle 
the the aspect the the way I could see it in my crossword builder programs was little bits of it, and I wanted to be able to see like this was the whole puzzle. This was the context in which this entry appeared, so that I could more easily evaluate is the, would this work in this puzzle in this context that I was working on, sort of thing. And I had a friend who suggested Python as a language to learn as was a cool language, and I knew very little about web protocols um back in my ibm days i knew like i we knew the i knew the details the bits and bytes of the tcp protocol ip protocol that was the level at which i were i other to the operating system the middleware um the web i didn't want to learn how to i i needed a framework so and i looked around what was there pylons there was a set of them and there were several to choose from and I gravitated to Django because of the documentation. Okay, interesting. Pretty much. And the the completeness, like I didn't have to choose I didn't have to make a lot of decisions like do I want I forget. The other ones seemed like they were piece parts. Yeah. Like you had to make decisions and I didn't want to have to make a lot of decisions about do I want to use this or that? I just want to like do it for me <laughs> and let me focus on what yeah, batteries. I need to do. Yeah. So that, that's really cool. So that was what, cause that's the, that's the philosophy, right? Great docs and batteries included and you know, 15, yeah. 15 years into its lifetime. That's still what people say about, you know, we had um, some folks on recently saying, you know, what, you know, it's the docs. It's the, you know, it's the fact it got, it's got everything with you. Can I just, I just say, I, I feel like, writing like the definitive testing book on a framework and then getting a job is like the biggest subtle flex I've ever seen for a job interview. <laughs> <laughs> so kudos. I love that. It's like, why should we hire when you I for Django? Job, it, it wasn't the definitive book then because it did barely come out, I think. Um, but still, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and just to take a moment, I went to your chapter titles, like as a book author, like I love your chapter titles. Like you have, you know, when you don't even know what to log, using debuggers like <laughs> when problems hide getting more information and then what was my favorite one is yeah when the wheels fall off like the, the Django debug page <laughs> I love those things because you know it's it's hard to liven up a technical book um, but mm. anyways no, Carlton you I were going to ask a question I mean Thank I, you. I, I didn't study computer science so I studied philosophy so um, you know, I was self-taught and it, it was all print statements, you know, and I, you know, I, did, I could reason my way through a program and I did, I do print debugging the whole time. And when I found your book, it was very much like, ah, oh, bam, this is the tooling that goes, that's that cool. step beyond. And so, and to learn the debugger and, you know, that it's just like a whole new power tool that you've, you've got and it really, so it really did, um, you know, it really did change my I wish you would update it. I wish there was a, a modern definitive testing book. I mean, Adam Johnson has his, you know, he's gone a step beyond with, you know, speed up your Django tests, but I think there's still a spot for fully testing a Django project. Um, if I did more Django books, I would do one on that. Um, but it's a big, yours is the only it's book big, on it. It's a big topic. Yeah. It's like, when it's do you? It's a big commitment. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I wrote that when I didn't have a job. So it was, I mean, I was full-time working on that when I did it. Um, well, what was I doing then? I was doing that. I was, I was writing crossword puzzles. I was helping out on Django users. I had to answer a lot of questions, you know, helping out with Django. Um, and I, I use, I volunteered at cat rescue and I have, uh, we track the cats in a Django database. Hmm. Um, so I was, I wasn't full-time on the book, but I was spending a lot of time writing the book. Um, and I just can't conceive of doing a writing a book or even revising a book with a full-time job in the rescue. <laughs> it's like, just, just every eight months. It's not a big deal. <laughs> priorities. Um, yeah, there's just so much I would like to do that I don't have time for. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Carlton, you're asking about that. You're well, asking uh, a question. So, well, I would. So then, okay. So you're using Django. You 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 said you get involved in um you know helping on Django users, and then you got involved in helping with running the project itself and the the board and the, the DSF and things like that. Can you talk about that 
um, that part of it. Cause yeah, I want to hear could... war stories of the early board. You know, what was, what was it like back in the day? Uh, it was, I'm trying to remember. It was a long time ago. It was probably not very, I, I don't know what it's like now cause I'm not on the board, but we dealt with, um, requests for aid. I'm sure you yep, same. still do a lot of that of mm -hmm. people asking for grants for this, that, and the other thing. Um, I think we did the, around then was when we were working on getting the trademark and mm. agreement mm -hmm. finalized. Um, and we had a lot of issues and back and forth with getting, how do we affordably get legal advice? That's still an issue. Yep. Still an issue. <laughs> uh, and accounting, accounting help, um, and funding. Mm. I think, I, I, I think Django is in a better position now than it was then with getting funding. Well, this um, is all pre-fellows too, because... Um, this was pre-fellows, pre-technical board, pre... Right. I mean, this was still back when there was the core team. And well, so what was the funding for? Um, I mean, I, I, the servers, I mean, how, I guess, how was, how was it being used? I mean, I guess sponsoring conferences was, and stuff or? I think it was primarily for sponsoring Django Girls events, those kinds of things that it was needed for. Um, we didn't have the fellows then, but there, there was a sense that something was needed to make Django sustainable you know, a, a self-sustaining organization um, like the fellows, because as an all-volunteer organization, not funded by a big company, it's like people's situations change, their interests change. They, you can't, Django couldn't continue if it was going to be the focus of, you know, if it's just a, the core group of people working on it forever. That just wasn't going to work. I mean, so as you know working in a fellow role one thing that comes up is, is, is it's it, it's the sheer amount of new tickets that come in that's the the main issue so if you're a volunteer open source contributor you know working on your patch working on the old thing doing a little bit of you know new ticket comes in but it's like this this fire hose of fire. ticket <laughs> ticket reports and maris and i are just spending the whole time you know paddling upstream against it and that's fine because we're we're contracted to do that, but that's not sustainable for a volunteer contributor at all. Yeah, that was the kind of thing that I like to do when I was involved in it. Answer questions on the mailing list. Look at every ticket that comes in. Is this valid, not valid? Point them in the right direction, that kind of thing. And yeah, I can imagine it's even worse now than it was then. But I see, I see lots of, um, you know, lots of comments from you in track because we still use the old track and you know there's every so often it comes up why aren't we using github um, github issues you know why don't we move that it'd be more accessible perhaps because the track's a bit clunky but i think the ultimate reason is that the history there you know there'll be discussions featuring you and others that really explain why it is that the framework's the way it is and if we just move to a different issue tracker that knowledge is lost and um yeah unless you can import it yeah which probably, I think the thing that kept us off of GitHub issues way back when we moved from what was it, SVN? Yeah, SVN GitHub, before Git, I think. Uh, was the ability, I, may, I don't know that this has changed, like anyone could create an issue or do something in track and move something along or, or change the state or yeah. whatever and we didn't have that capability in get with github issues it didn't seem yeah, like yeah and it's to be honest it still doesn't really have the the, the the level of um project management knobs and buttons that the track's got and so okay it's difficult to learn the track but it is very powerful you know and it yeah the triage pipeline and there's a things. lot of history there now yes <laughs> yeah, there is. why things are the way they are <laughs> can i ask with your specific to the testing book so you you came to Django and Python with you know, testing programming experience in other areas. What, how did that seem to you, the, the Python Django approach or the tools, you know, then and now, since you still use Django, like wh what do you, what are your takeaways? Like if you sat at 30,000 feet looking at like the pros and cons of the sort of Python Django approach to testing? I don't know that I actually had a whole lot of 
experience with automated testing before I before I came to Django. Back when back in the day of working for IBM, the testing we did was manual. Like there was a whole test organization. You'd throw your code over the wall to test and tests would come back with with issues. We didn't do a whole lot of automated testing in my experience. So my experience really is with Django. And actually, before I wrote the book, I was not big into testing for my own project. Oh, for your own, yeah. Yeah, like... Because such a hassle. Django itself had the test suite, and I was involved in maintaining Django, and I, I understood how to... I understood the value of Django's tests, and, and that sort of taught me... The, the reason you want a test suite is to be able to make changes and have confidence that you haven't broken anything. Whereas a lot of people, I think, come to testing thinking, particularly when you're writing a feature and part of it is supposed to be tests, like to prove that your, your code works. And that's not really the goal. It's more to make your code maintainable meaning someone else can change it later and your tests will indicate to them whether or not what they've done is having some unexpected side effect of breaking previously held assumptions. So my my learning of te- my my learning of Django and writing that book was a lot of learning about how to test or the value of testing. Well, I think that's the best mode in which to write a book is while you're learning and mastering it because you have empathy for a reader in a way that later on you have to work harder to get. Like, just do it. It's obvious, right? Why doesn't... <laughs> there's there's one um, thing that you cover quite deeply in the book, which is kind of dropped away, which is doc tests, um, which is this, this brilliant thing that Python has where you can write a doc string and if you put a little terminal snippet in, it will run the terminals. You can run it as a doc test and it will run the terminal snippet and tell you if that didn't work or if the output wasn't correct. I was wondering uh, what you, you know. If you, I come sometimes shed a tear for the lock, loss of doc tests. So I don't know. You think any way of rescuing those from the from the graveyard? I do kind of. I did. I wrote that whole chapter. I did include them. I mean, back when I was writing the book, doc tests and unit tests were sort of on equal footing. They were. They were not. There wasn't then a sense that doc tests were going to be eliminated as they were eventually. But I did I did find the unit test framework much more powerful, I think. Yeah. Um, and just from a I think from a maintaining the tests point of view, I think they're easier unit tests than doc tests. Um, I didn't ever get into writing a lot of doc tests in my own code. I think I did get some feedback that I downplayed them a bit too much, and I. I sometimes wonder if they, um, it might, because one complaint about comments is, oh, they always get out of date. I wonder if there's some sort of yeah. literate program in doc test style mashup where you can use the doc tests to ensure that your comments stayed up to date. Yeah, that's true. That that is a. A big problem with comments is that they get out of date. Uh, yeah, doc tests, I do kind of regret that they're entirely gone. I mean, I think they do have a place. They could have a place. They don't have a place anymore, but there was a crusade to get rid of them at some point, and they're all gone now. They obviously um, upset someone. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I, I, don't, I, don't say, I don't know that I really understood why they were so rigorously removed like i think they could have they could have continued i think there was a place for them but okay fair enough um so cactus group you've been there i think going on about 12 years now i'd love to hear about projects you've you've worked on you know this is about as much as anything real world stories of django and you know interesting things that you've thrown django at and how that (laughs) how that worked or didn't work I'm sure you have many to choose from, so that's a, that's a, a big question. To yeah, there's ask. lots. What, what what's the life of a jobbing developer? As Carlton would say, life of a jobbing developer. Um, right, that's the phrase, Carlton. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. You're a jobbing, jobbing developer. Then. Not not just like, you know, for fun or like a book writing developer, like a jobbing developer, like but getting like, paid by an yeah, employer. Yeah. So I started with Cactus, like it was really small and then it got bigger and then it got smaller and it got bigger. Um, but we've worked for, we've worked with various projects over the years and I really enjoy the direct contact with people who are going to use the software or that was, that's the primary thing that I really enjoy over like working for IBM where it's small cog in this huge, huge wheel. And you don't really understand why you're building what you're building or you hear from marketing, they need these features and you're like, that doesn't make any sense. I don't understand that. Like um, I really like the direct interaction with clients who are going to be using um, the projects over the years and we've I've worked on smaller, bigger. Um, there's one that's we still got. That uh, it's probably I think it's out on the website as a case study the the survey for schools school surveys. We've um, it's a tool that's used to administer surveys to in Chicago the state of Illinois. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a there's a case study, so I'll put that in the notes. Yeah. Yeah. So that that is still running, and actually, the uh, I believe the Illinois school survey starts today. So that that's a funny project in that it the website associated with that goes from needing twenty four web servers a day to not being used at all, depending on the time of year. So over the summer, like it's completely dead. You could turn it off, and no one would know. Whereas this time of year when schools are in session, there may be surveys running for the state of Illinois, Chicago Public Schools, other places. Um, so it's, it's that's an interesting project in the the periodicity of it and the having a set time where like you could make massive major changes and and get it all done and not have to worry about migrating the data because you know, the data for the last year gets purged and the new year you start completely fresh. So it's kind of an interesting different sort of thing from a website where you're, it's always up and you need to, you need to maintain the data all the time and it's always got traffic and you need to be aware of that. So there's all sorts of different projects. Some are Small. Can I just ask about the scaling yeah. there? I mean, do you deploy that in a kind of traditional way, you know, servers and, you know, one DB server and various servers in front? That, that, has, kind of that has an environment has at least two web, uh, at least two web servers running all the time. There are at least two database servers, a master or a primary and a one read replica. Um, Cash worker server for celery rabbit okay. kind of stuff. So there's at least I think five minimum servers. It's set up with it's on AWS. It's got an auto scaling group okay. and it's set up to auto scale based on um, CPU of the web servers. Okay, so then that handles that that flux between that smaller setup and then the you know the peak demand for you. Yeah, when it is in when we know it's going to be an active use and the traffic for this particular case of the entire state of Illinois starts surveys, you know, school starts at 8 a.m. and the class is going to come in, you're going to get yeah, okay. a massive <laughs> yeah, millions influx. Of millions of students, of, right? Like a couple million. You're going to get a massive influx at a particular time. We did find that the auto scaling could lag so we usually set it up so that instead of, so there's a scheduled action at the beginning of the day to bring up at least six servers, which allows for enough time to get everything up if it needs 24. Like it doesn't, yeah, okay. it doesn't fall off a cliff before it adjusts to the fact that you've got that much server. So we do have some timed actions that bring up a minimum, that increase the minimum capacity at the beginning of the day yeah, okay. and then let it then let the auto scaling based on cpu 
handle it during the day. Okay, and then I wondered, that's super, I wondered about um, whether your your original work on microkernels and client, you know, and the, the, the relations between mainframes and, and personal computers, whether that ties back into this sort of containerization and Kubernetes things. Microkernels is a, is a hot phrase, right? And I wonder if you could have thoughts in that. I'm sort of half being silly, but... <laughs> I have, so there are so many aspects of web from deployment to, you know, configuration management of the servers, deployment, the, the web framework itself, the front end, the JavaScript, my folk, my, my, my desire to learn more is more on the front end okay, and, uh, fine. that than on the, there is a huge amount of Kubernetes interest at at uh, Cactus and um, most of our current projects are deployed using Kubernetes. This older project is not using Kubernetes. Um, and I don't know that we will ever move it to Kubernetes, but for the most part with Kubernetes, I'm like, okay, all that complexity, y'all figure that out and give me the, give me the commands to run or, or set up Throw the it over CI the wall to, do to the it. DevOps and yeah. <laughs> okay, super. So can I ask then which are the bits of front end that you you find most interesting, most exciting, you know, in the in the uh, the user as I would like to learn more about how to effectively design user interfaces that are a joy for people to use versus not. Okay. <laughs> which is what a lot of websites are not a joy to use. Um I'm excited about, we're starting to experiment with HTMX. I was going to ask you about that. that. We have to ask it in every episode now, but we just, we yeah. just, yeah, the last couple episodes, we spoke to some folks from Berkeley using HTMX and yeah. So what what, what are your experiences yeah, with it? We're just starting to use it. Um, I, it's interesting to me, like it's, it's just replaced this part of a page sort of focus if you go back to that um, that survey thing we wrote, the the survey taking part of it is all a single page, and when you press next, it just replaces that part. You know the the question part of the page. You know submits the answers and re replaces that. It was a requirement of the the original specifications that it not say that you know you're on page. You, the URL not change as you progress through the survey. You're not supposed to see the page number you're on in reflected in the URL. So that was sort of dictated by the the specifications, but it was it required writing you know a little JavaScript to do that, and it's cool that HTMX would make that a whole lot easier to do. I like it. I there were several Django Con talks about HTMX. It seemed like or the yeah there were two JavaScript yeah this, this year there was. I think three or the several. Yeah, I think there were three and I found all of them interesting. I, I do like approaches where you can take advantage of all the stuff that Django has, forms, authentication, so that you don't have to redo everything in the front end, do it twice. Um, so I'm excited about HTMX. Don't have a whole lot of experience with it yet have done like, have added, what is it? Um, the endless scroll pagination, where if you reveal the bottom of a list, it just pulls in more. Infinite scroll, I think, that right? That was very easy to do. Infinite scroll, um, it was very easy to do with HTMX. Uh, I think that's one cool thing about it is none of us have got a whole lot of experience with it, but there's lots of people excited about it and using it and being like, ah. Yeah. One thing for me that it really lit up when I first gave it a go was I was able to be I was able to do things that I haven't sort of been quote unquote allowed to do for you know say five six years I haven't been allowed to do it this way you know you can't do it that way and I was like but I can do it that way and it's really speedy and it's just using the basics and oh wow I kind of had an oh wow um, yeah I think one of the things I've not been involved in a heavy front end project that use React or whatever, I would like to to learn more about uh, using React for sophisticated user interfaces. What, I'm, what I don't know, what I'd really like to figure out is if I can, if we can figure out how to use Django Forms 
and not like recreate all of the validation that you can put in a Django form and have to do it in both the front end and the back end. I don't know if that's going to be possible, but well, there's a front end framework called um, Alpine, which is a bit like based a bit like Vue, but much simpler. Is it sort of um, uptake the the tailwind people? The reason I got into it, the tailwind people said if you, if you would be using jQuery, then we recommend Alpine. You know, we, mm. you should definitely be so. And it's sort of like that that for that level up from HTML where you really want to keep the state on the on the client mm -hmm. and one trick i was able to use was to send the data as form data rather than as json because you know you just create a form mm -hmm. object and add the you know in javascript and then send it and reuse then my form layer in django and that was that that turned out to work really well um cool. so. that sounds like a talk carlton Oh, yeah, yeah. If, if, if there's ever a conference again, yeah. Are, yeah, are we ever going to get back to in-person conferences? But yeah, so I mean, anyway, I think I think there's a, a there's a really um, fertile territory around here around this area. Um, I'll have to look into that. Can Can I ask again about crosswords? Because you mentioned it, but uh, I mean, you've had what over a hundred published in the New York Times. I mean, it's not just a hobby for you. I would. Right, I think I think I saw that you have over you have you have a lot in the New York Times. I had a hundred, maybe total published. Yeah, yeah. So that was in the time when I didn't have a job. I was doing crosswords, and I have not. That did continue after I had a job. I had one editor I worked with who had a curated list of uh, constructors that he was working with for the. I forget now where that was, but he. So instead of doing freelance, it was it was scheduled. You have a puzzle due, and it will get published, kind of thing. Um, I have not been constructing crosswords now for a few years, so that's sort of also fallen by the wayside of of life. One of those things I'd like to get back to sometime. Can I ask just what was your approach? Because I've seen like some documentaries on crossword puzzles, and people make them differently. Like how do you how do you get all the fit together? I mean, it is a puzzle, right? Like what what was your approach? Um, I wrote my own crossword builder helper kind of crossword builder program that, uh, helped me in writing a grid. I focused on, so there's two, there's main, in American crossword puzzles, there's basically two different kinds. One has a themed crossword where the long entries all share some right. theme, and then there's themeless crosswords where the long entries are basically there there is no overriding theme to the puzzle but the long entries are going to be interesting there's usually fewer words in them and i focus more on the the themeless crossword puzzles so there you would start with what are just some interesting words to have in a crossword puzzle and interesting usually means unusual letters like j's and q's and x's and z's you know, how many of those weird oddball letters could you pack into a puzzle? So you start by place, you start by with a theme list, you'd start with one or two long entries maybe that you want to pack into a puzzle and then figure out how to place black squares. Mm, right. Following the rules of no few, you know, no, no word less than three letters and symmetry and how do you place black squares so that you likely going to be able to fill it? Like you, you're not going to put a cue at the end of a word. Like if you'd want to think about where you, where you're particularly where your special letters are, there may be some constraints on where you want, want the words to end and start and end. And then I would focus on the most constrained area of the grid and see what is possible to put in there and pick the best set and then move out to the left. And by doing that, you constrain, you make another area of the grid more constrained and then focus on that. Are you going to be able to fill that part of it? Um, the, the program and other programs, my program and other programs would do autofill. Like here's a, here's a set. This fills it. Like a thesaurus kind of, you, of options or. It is like you can say it, you know, just fill the grid and you see so you got word lists and you could fill the grid and, but you might look at that and say, mm, there's a lot of junk entries in there, you know, things that are three letter acronyms or 
abbreviations or yeah, you know, stuff that is just not interesting. You, so. You've got an aesthetic, you know, standard to uphold here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's it's not like you can. I, in some cases, you might say, "Well, just remove those entries from your word list and just never include them." But then, it's it's probably okay to have one or two of them in a grid, and just having them available makes it more possible to to have something that is a great grid. So it, it's very hard to, like, you need to, I, ideally, I guess, maybe you could automate the whole thing if you could rank your word list or give assignments right, like of value to the, to the entries. But there's just, I mean, that's a huge task. And that becomes like <laughs> a search problem. Like, uh, Yeah, it is a search problem. Like, what are the solutions to fill the grid? And what is the highest right. <laughs> score? The, highest yeah. ranking. And are your crosswords? That's going to be your best. Are your crosswords sort of the property then of the the newspaper which published them, or could you put together a compilation? And you know, they are the property of like the New York Times and the syndicates that I worked for. Okay. That you sell the whole thing. Well, okay, so, um, so they appear in compilations of the New York Times crossword puzzles. Yeah, we have. My wife loves them, so we have all those books. Yeah. One of the editors I worked with, the the New York Sun, he did create a, a compilation of um, my puzzles and another constructors, and turned that into a book that he did give us part of the royalties for. So depending on the outlet, you may have some ability to continue getting paid for it, but um, mostly you just sell it and. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. I had one more kind of question about software development. So we, we talked about, you know, um, your preference for front end and working with and creating you nice user UIs. And that's something that you're interested in designing good UIs. And then we, we cut into HTMX and React and talking about those things. But I wonder if, do you think UI design is more of a people, you know, is it software? You know, is it, it's more of a design thing, right? It's, it's not, oh, if I do it in this framework. You need framework. to be aware of people. I think there's a definitely a technical aspect to it as well. Um, I think all of software is more people-oriented than is generally understood. Even just writing readable and maintainable software the person writing it today is not going to be the, is not necessarily, if it's going to be successful, it's not going to be the person maintaining it tomorrow. So just being aware that the code is not just for the computer ever is an important aspect of programming. Even if it is you maintaining it yeah because you're not the same the future, you right <laughs> you're not the same you i mean you i come back to code that was written years ago or even just months ago and i'm like who wrote this i did but like, <laughs> like i mean things change if, if you're holding you know it takes time to load it into your your mind right you get into that that where you're really holding the whole logical structure in your brain and to to reload that can take you know yeah even if it was just yesterday yeah. Well, that that's my my favorite programming quote of all time is Ryan Dahl, who created Node.js, and he said, the only thing that matters is the experience of the user. Yeah, having just built Node. <laughs> 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 so it's sort of a full circle, like, you know, because to your point about, you know, why is the UI bad? I'm, most of my friends are non-technical, so they'll be like, oh, this website's terrible. Why is it terrible? And I usually say, because they don't care about you. You know, it's a it's a government website or it's a corporation. It's not the focus. Yeah, it's yeah. like it's bad because you're going to struggle through it. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, it is on the learning journey, right? Like I got into software because I wanted to build websites, and I was like, oh, some are good, some are bad. I didn't know why, and then I became enamored with the tools. But then, you know, at some point you come back to, well, tools are tools; they're not the end goal, and the end goal is making it better. And yeah, to Carlton's question, that's a mix of psychology, and then I think there is some hard truths around how do you actually make something navigable for a user. I don't know where that line is, though. 
It's hard. But I mean, watching someone, right? Like that's that's always my test for even startups or tech companies. Like, let me get the CEO and see if you can go through the process for your main product. Because I bet half the time you can't, right? Yeah. <laughs> Especially. Another thing you learn from building websites and, and having people use them is people don't read. <laughs> Not like my parents are like, no one reads. And they mean like novels. It's like, no, they don't even like read, read. They don't even read the error message or they don't read. So to make it so that it's intuitive to use is very difficult. Right. Um, they turned like the Hulk like ASAP and shut off all <laughs> all reasoning. Well, I even notice it myself I well. mean, when I'm using a website and it, it doesn't do what I want. I, I don't even bother to read the error message. Like, make it go away. <laughs> if there's a pop-up, my, my initial reaction, just make it go away. I don't even want to read it. It's like, why is there a pop-up? Get, get rid of it. And that's not wrong. <laughs> That's why you must never break the back button, right? Because if you break the back button, <laughs> that's it. Your site's out the window. Yeah. Well, that was um, in the history of kind of UI stuff, uh, Intuit, which makes TurboTax, I feel confident saying generally is an evil company. But when they were starting out, their only measure was how fast can people file their taxes? And so they would go around to retirement communities, all these places, and they just uh, rigorously were like, anything we can do to break, bring down the time. And they brought it down from, I think, like 30 minutes to five minutes for these different sections. And it was just just put it in front of people and just see where they get stuck and, you know, sit back and shut mm. up. <laughs> and, you know, that, and that's kind of what it what it takes. Right. Even a, a startup like startups I've worked at, you, you need to spend that time to go and watch real world users using it because generally they'll get stuck on things you didn't think of. Uh, right. Like we would always want to show a new feature at this education startup is that we'd want to like go to a classroom every week when in a classroom, we'd want to show off this new feature. And nine times out of 10, something else broke or was confusing. And we're like, oh, we need to focus on that, which we never thought of. But yeah. but it's you know putting in the time. And it can feel like wasted time when you have a long queue of features and bugs. But ultimately, of course, you know, sitting with users and making like senior people sit with users, not just people who are told what to do. Make like the product manager and make like the CEO sit there and watch a user struggle through generally kind of clicks whatever you've been someone's been saying about the UI. Yeah. Yeah, really understanding what the perspective of the people who are using it. Which goes back to my is. point, like the UI is bad because they don't care about you. <laughs> which, well, which I jokingly, but also seriously say to people, it's like, you know, right? A consumer or an uh, enterprise product, you will hunt for that button because there's money involved. A consumer product, if it's not right there, you won't. So something that's free, the UI is always going to be better than... I don't know, pick a company to rag on into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's, they don't care about you or they, they don't have the, they're the programmers don't have the knowledge of your perspective. Like whenever there's a long chain of, of things in between the end user and the person writing the code, I fear there's a, there's a loss of context and understanding around what, what is, required what is needed what would make it good well and carlton separate from ui sorry carlton i just say i was gonna give your quote to you carlton which is that separate from ui all production code is just like just barely good enough to work yeah, but yeah, no, yeah. no, no more that, that, so you've you've interrupted to say what i was exactly going to say is that you know <laughs> the, the budget often isn't there for the developer to spend time building the ui at all you know it's we got the database working and we got it served we got a form up the form just about takes the data the unit test passed oh can i actually make the form nice no 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 move on another pro no. and that kind of really bare bones development environment is quite frequent i think yeah the focus is often on we need this to do this and if it can do that task then right if it hits the spec it's done yeah. yeah. Hit suspect, sign it off, you know, next project. We have clients who have budgets, I mean, and then deadlines, and we do the best we can. I think people are doing the best they can in the situation they're at, right? Well, um, we're almost out of time. Is there anything else we haven't asked you about or that you want to bring up while <laughs> while you're on? Any other interests or projects? Uh, or? I don't think so. So Carlton and I doing this podcast regularly, we know each other's sayings. So that's why it's now it's sort of a game to like interrupt each other with those. Like I, I kind of know <laughs> with each other. I sayings. know what he's going to say. You can probably guess what I'm going to mutter. So it's like like bingo between us to keep it interesting, Carlton. Right? 
<laughs> you just like teasing me because I repeat myself. <laughs> well, so do I. So do I. Well, you know what it is? It's because I have to edit these. So I have to listen to them all 2-3x than you. So I think that's yeah. why. Okay. I'm like, oh, yeah. Anyways, well, Karen, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I'm really wanted to have you on, have you on for a long time. I didn't dabble too much. No, no, no. <laughs> Ma- massively interesting. And I've, I'd just love to hit, chat to you and hear your story. And, you know, again, th- thanks for everything you've done for Django. And thank you for your, writing that book all that time ago, because as I say, it really did make a massive difference to me. And, you know, as I've still got it on the shelf. Yeah, I think there are, I think it still has, I think one of your questions was, uh, you know, what's still true and what's different. I mean, the specifics and the details in the error message may be different, but the, I think it tried to focus on doing things in small steps and validating what you got and understanding when, like, I think one of them is breaking things on purpose, like understand what it's going to do when things don't work, you know, so that you can understand what it's saying when things don't work and you don't know why it doesn't work. Like None of the happy path uh, coding. Well, you can do the happy path coding, but then also like make it fail on yeah. purpose and make sure that that it's showing you the right. You understand what it says when it's breaking, you know, what it means. Um, so I think there's still stuff in there that's valid. No, I'm, I don't know how it still stands hard up. it is I mean, to the, the the only two chapters which don't like that are sort of dated with the doc test chapter and then the um, uh, interface testing one, because I think you used a, a different framework than Selenium and Selenium became much bigger afterwards. So that, that was, But the, the underlying principles there still account, but the rest of it is still kind of basically up to date. You know, this is one of the amazing things about Django is, you know, you've got a whole project, you fire it up, a, a, you know, you add it on Cascade to, lead to your models and it just sort of runs. And the same with your book is, you know, like you, you, you explain the um, the debugging page, like the, you know, the chat. And that's still exactly the same. That's, you know, it's hardly changed in... And people, people come in to Django and don't know, don't understand all of what you can get out of that page. Like... There's a, there's a tendency to see the top and say like okay it's broken and hardly even read the error message and just go back to the code and I was like you can actually dig in here and see why it's broken and that can that can make things a lot better in fixing whatever the underlying problem is like you don't have to go back to the code and just like no it's broken somewhere you can see it's broken in a specific place because of these values and variables and stuff yeah and but inside that discussion you also taught about reading a stack trace and you know and things yeah. like that and it's like this it's just gold dust to be honest it's such a good book um and it's really stood the test of time so i i, I can keep um, flushing about it forever i love it <laughs> Hopefully, are we going to ever get back into like in-person conferences? Oh, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I, I was thinking the other day, like I really miss DjangoCon. You know, I just, like, yeah, I, I miss, just had this moment. Of, I'm not a social person, but I miss having get-togethers of people to talk about random things <laughs> of interest. It will come. It will come. We just have to hold on until it does. So. Well, Karen, thank you again. Um, We are at DjangoChat.com, chat Django on Twitter, and we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. Thanks. Join us next time. Bye-bye.